Well, a couple of things this morning before I begin. I received a text message from Ed Harkins. Now, some of you know that Nancy has gone to uh, Clinton, Texas, wherever that is, south of the Oklahoma border anyway. And uh, being in an art show, and uh, the first one says, good news from Clifton. Nancy's uh, one painting received a second place award. And then the one I just got said, more good news. One more award and two soul. Thank you, Lord. So, <laughs> you know, we rejoice in our sister's uh, success. Another thing, you know, uh, Bud Green and I are in a race. And... Um, until last week, he was 83, and I'll be 83 in two weeks, but the rascal turned 84 this weekend, so try as I may, I just can't catch up with him. <laughs> but aren't we glad that he survived Darlene's absence? <laughs> and uh, she was telling me she flew back on 9-11 and realized it was 9-11, and Tried to change a flight, and the airline wouldn't let her, but she did get back. Let me begin this morning by saying something very personal. Each time I step in the pulpit these days, I do it with a bit of fear and trembling. For some reason, throughout my life, I've never experienced stage fright. I didn't have stage fright as a child, being in plays and all that sort of thing. But I do fear the judgment of God. And I fear that I might misrepresent God in some way when I stand in the pulpit. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will receive a stricter judgment. And there will come a day when I'll have to stand before God and give answer for how I have represented Him, how I have presented His will, and because of that I have to remain very, very true to what's revealed in His Holy Word. At the same time, I have to be content with admitting there are many things about God I don't know. And I have to acknowledge that there are things that God has chosen not to reveal. And we must be content with that. <laughs> Reflecting upon that reality, Moses wrote to the Israelites, The secret things belong to Jehovah our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And prior to his ascension, you recall our Lord Jesus Christ said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, And teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so under the New Covenant, we might paraphrase Moses by this, the secret things belong to our God, 
but the things revealed to us that we may observe all things whatsoever our Lord Jesus has commanded us. Because of that commandment and that warning given by James concerning the severity of judgment that will be passed upon teachers, frankly, these days I approach the pulpit with reverential fear. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders as he was traveling toward Jerusalem, this was a year or two after he had been in Ephesus, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And my hope and my prayer is that when it comes my time to leave this life, if some of you stand by my bedside, I can say to you without flinching, without any deceit, and I pray that without any personal agenda, recognizing I'll have to give account not only for the content, but the spirit and the motive in which I've spoken, I've done my best to declare the whole counsel of God. And I say this today because the word that I believe our Lord has put upon my heart is not a pleasant word. In rather a bleak way, it's connected to the word that Bill brought last Sunday concerning God's wrath, His love, and His holiness. In a way, it's a very unpleasant word. In a way, it's a glorious word. But in every way, it is a true word. And the word is this, Hebrews 9.27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. Judgment. Paul wrote to the Romans, But why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans 14.10 Romans 14.12 So then each one of us will give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Acts 10.42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. 2 Peter 3, 7, by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. On my computer in my Bible program, I searched 
For all the scriptures that spoke of judgment, the day of judgment, the judgment seat, and I printed them off, and page after page after page came out of the printer. The Word of God speaks clearly that there will be a day of judgment. But first it is accounted unto men to die once. Every person in this room will die. Every person living on the planet will die. Death is inevitable. The richest man in the world or the poorest pauper will die. The, the person who is the most righteous person, the, most, the vilest person in the streets will die. The Hollywood movie star that's on everyone's lips and constantly in the magazines and that person who is totally unknown doing the menial of tasks die. Hear me this morning. You will die. When I was about five or six years old, I know it was that age because it was in a house on Live Oak Street in Muskogee and we moved there when I was about five and moved away when I was seven. So about five or six years of age, I awakened one night full of fear. And I was thinking about death, and I didn't want to die. And I went down the hall and went to my mother's bedroom and grabbed her nightgown and began to tug, Mama, I don't want to die. Mama, I don't want to die. <laughs> wonder what she thought some kid waking up in the middle of the night saying that. But she said, Oh, Jimmy, <laughs> that's a long way off. Go back to bed and go to sleep. Now, her answer really wasn't necessarily true. <laughs> oh, probably so, <laughs> but maybe not. Something could have happened to me that week to have taken my life, even before the next morning. We don't know when it will happen, do we? We're all going to die. Now, how do we respond to that inevitable fate? Some flippantly say, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. <laughs> or may die, but will die. That's what the citizens in Jerusalem did one time when the Lord was trying to call them back to righteousness and bring repentance and judgment. Isaiah 22, 12 to 13 describes what they did. Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head, wearing sackcloth. Instead, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. And you say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. How many of you remember watching a movie in which John Wayne and a companion were getting ready to ride into a town where they, they knew they were going to be killed, but he whipped out his gun and said, I'll see you in hell. What a flippant approach. I have to wonder if all of the hurried, frenzied, life that we now lead in America 
is Satan's means of causing us to avoid contemplating the truth that is declared in Hebrews 9.27. It is accounted unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. I wonder, should we stop tweeting uh, is there, and twittering and texting and <laughs> Facebooking? And <laughs> is there such a thing as tweeting? I know birds do. Okay. <laughs> but all these things, you, you, there's some people, you never see them without a phone to their ear are doing this. I, I was telling uh, uh, Jim Grinnell and Bruce, I, the health club go to work out. It's so aggravating. I allow myself exactly one hour from when I walk in the door and when I leave, and I have certain things I need to get done. And here's some guy sitting on a machine texting. And my judgmental attitude begins to come out. Texting. <laughs> what are you there for, man? These things so occupy us that we don't have time to sit down at sunset and ponder the fact that there is a sunset of life. And we will all know that someday. And after that, judgment. Someday you're going to die. Someday I'm going to die. <laughs> what then? After that, judgment. Now what happens when we die? In Scripture, there is a thin veil over this topic. So many things concerning life immediately after death are not clear. But some things are clear. First of all, the word Hades. Now, the Greek word Hades means the abode of the dead. And the King James Version, unfortunately, did not render Hades and Gehenna differently. Gehenna was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, which is used consistently in Scripture for hell, the lake of fire. In some places, Scripture speaks of Hades. In some places, it speaks of hell. Hades is the abode of the dead. And that's where spirits go when the spirit leaves the body. But let's think about Hades. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.23, I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. And then, remember on the cross, Jesus said to the thief in Luke 23, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now from these and other passages, it is apparent that those who belong to Jesus at death immediately will find themselves in the presence of the Lord. Those who are not His will find themselves in another place. But what is that 
Jesus in Luke 16 talking about the rich man and Lazarus describing the rich man said in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Doesn't sound very pleasant does it? Second Peter 2.4 For God did not spare angels when they sinned And most versions say, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's a very unfortunate rendering. The Greek word is tartarao, which means to cast into Tartarus. And Tartarus, in the Greek understanding of things, was the lower region of Hades. It was a subterranean area which was doleful and dark and that's where all who were evil went at death. So it's interesting that Peter, using the language of the day, described a portion of Hades where the damned are awaiting the judgment. Whereas those who belong to Jesus are with him waiting the judgment day. Now, because of some things stated in the closing portions of the book of Revelation, there are some who would believe that when Jesus Christ ascended, he took paradise out of Hades, and that now is a separate entity. That may be true, that may not be true, but we know this, those who are with Jesus are in paradise. And those who are not are in Tartarus, the darker part of Hades. And so we might say that both those who belong to Jesus and those who don't are in a holding chamber (laughs) waiting for the judgment day, one in a place of joy and glory, the others not so. Revelation 20 beginning with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now my, as we read that passage, aren't there a lot of questions that come to mind? And we'll not delve with them today. But note the obvious truth. There is coming a day of judgment 
and all of humanity will be cast into the lake of fire except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life is mentioned eight times in Scripture and then referred to sometimes not directly by name. For example, in Luke 10.20, we find the record of when the disciples of Jesus had come back from a mission. They were all excited. Why, even the demons are subject to us. Jesus altered their perspective when he said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. If there's anything in this life you need to attend to, you better make sure your name is recorded in heaven. You're going to die. Are you ready? When the time comes for you to begin breathing your last breath, and physical life is slipping away, will it be a time of peace or a time of uncertainty or a time of fear? A couple of weeks ago, I was reading some church history material And I read about a man who had committed his life to caring for the community. He had blessed everyone. Every place he went, he seemed to exude the spirit of Jesus. But in that particular community, they believed that the only way you could know whether or not a person was saved was how he died. Did he die in peace? The physician reported this man did with the words of Jesus upon his lips. You know, as I I read that article, I began to think about the various individuals with whom I have sat as they have passed from this life to the next. The last was when we sat with Ben. Bob and Shirley and Dave Troutman and I were with Ben as his dear life passed into the presence of Jesus. You know, the passing from this life into the next, how one dies, is a very intimate experience and demands a privacy that we need to respect. But I want to tell you about two deaths that I know I have the permission to discuss. Willard Hudson was in the Veterans Hospital in Muskogee, and I'd visit him various times there. And one day when I went to visit, and I was in the room with him alone, and we talked about his life, and then we talked about what was ahead. And oh, what peace. Nettie was exhausted. She had gone home to be in a nearby apartment. Willard, assuming I would officiate at his funeral, began to talk about his funeral. Now, Jimmy, I want you, when I pass on, (laughs) to play your clarinet. And I want you to play 
just a closer walk with thee. I said, Willard, I can't do that. That was in a day which I wasn't playing. I said, you know, my fingers don't work anymore. I don't have an embouchure. I can't do it. Jimmy, you can. Now promise me you will. <laughs> and I promised him, and you who attended his funeral know that I did so. After a while, there was such peace in the room. And Willard slumbered off. And so I sat down in the chair at the foot of the bed. The hours ticked by. We hours of the morning, a nurse came in, looked at him, touched him, and turned to me and said, He's gone. Such peace. He died looking forward to what was ahead, being with Jesus. You who have been around a while know that in 2008, or rather 1998, pardon me, my dear wife went through really a very terrible time. A stitch was lost when surgery was being done on her small intestine. She developed peritonitis and week after week in great suffering her life was in the balance. And on about the fourth week I think it was one morning a physician came in and said she should be getting better, but she is deteriorating. And they began to talk about death. She heard every word, terrible bedside manner. Now we had said to the church members, please don't come to visit. Because just the presence of someone in the room drains energy and life that she doesn't have. And you respected that. But on that morning, Carl Eason was praying, and God said to him, go to the hospital. And just after that doctor left the room, Carl knocked on the door, I stepped into the hall, he embraced me, and I bawled like a baby. And the church prayed, and for two more weeks, we fought. God gave us 10 more years. Barbara was different after that during those 10 years. One thing, I lost all interest in anything in this life. She was interested in every bird, every squirrel, every rabbit, <laughs> every blossom. She'd go in the yard and talk to the birds. But there was another deep thing that happened. For years it had been our custom on Sunday morning, I would get up first and make the coffee, and then I would come in and say, sweetheart, the coffee's ready, <laughs> and she would wake up, sit up, I'd hand her the coffee, and then I'd sit beside her, and in absolute silence we would drink a cup of coffee, and when she was ready for her next one, she nudged me and didn't say a word, and I got the second cup, but while we were doing that, 
In those days, KBEZ on Sunday morning played worship songs. And we sat and listened to those in silence. And then after the second cup, we had a long time of prayer. But I always recorded that music. And during the week, that was played in our home. And after that experience in 1998, there was one song so special to her. I dreamed of a city called glory, so bright, so fair. When I entered the gates, I cried, holy, and all the angels met me there. They carried me from mansion to mansion, and all oh, the sights I saw. I said, I want to see Jesus, the one who died for all. I dreamed as I entered the gates of the city. My loved ones all knew me well. They took me down the streets of heaven. Such scenes were too many to tell. I saw Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I talked with Mark and Timothy, but I said, I want to see Jesus, because he's the one who died for me. October 20th, 2008, she saw Jesus. How could Willard and Barbara die in peace knowing that a judgment lay ahead? The answer is in the context of Hebrews 9.27. But now once in the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after then comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Jesus Christ went to the cross a sinless, perfect being, both divine and human. And by doing so, he made it possible for us to face death, to face judgment, to face God without fear. Bill's excellent treatise last week on the wrath of God, so important, the wrath of God, that demands justice. The wrath of God, one aspect of His holiness, demands that a price be paid for sin. And that was done. As the incarnate God Himself went to the cross, and Him who knew no sin became sin in our behalf, 
so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Paul wrote, it is a worthy statement and deserving of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world and died to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.9 that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And to the Galatians he wrote in Galatians 3.27 All of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself to Christ. Now this morning, the benefit of that atonement is available to every one of us. Available to any of us who will partake of the marvelous gift that God's grace offers us. Salvation through Jesus. You might say, well, how? How do I do that? Well, the answer is as old as that given by the apostles when the Philippian jailer asked that question in Acts 16. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and then immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. On the day of Pentecost when the crowd cried out, what can we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's available to you. You just have to do what God said. Let me close by contrasting the fate of the damned and the fate of those whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11, or, uh, verse 1 rather, 21, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For well, the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And then verse 27, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we're not going to sing an invitation song, although this would be probably a good time to do it. It's 
morning, if you don't know for sure your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that needs to be the highest priority of your moment. And following the service this morning, Bill or Dave or I down front, we would be overjoyed to lead you in the good confession and then as quickly as we can to arrange the opportunity to immerse you into Jesus Christ. Are you ready to meet God?